This episode is dedicated to Alex Euler, Thomas Needham Johnson, and Merritt for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. If you can spare a few dollars a month, consider supporting us on Patreon. Not only do you get access to bonus content, but you'll also be supporting this entire project from research, podcasting, outreach, networking, social media, MMA curriculum, future training collectives, and all of our different online groups. If everyone who follows us were to support us with even $1 a month, this project could actually sustain my living and make this the only thing I do. My co-host Paul was able to keep working throughout the pandemic. However, I was not so fortunate. I also have a family to consider. Many leftist passion projects like this one have disappeared because the creators eventually had to make a financial decision whether to continue or not. The pandemic has only accelerated this timetable. We all know fascists and right-wing chuds who are doing well right now. And many of us, especially in the martial arts, support them by buying and ordering their products, their matches, attending their classes, seminars, and so forth. So if the money is being spent anyway, let's keep that money circulating within the anti-fascist sphere instead. Low-key hating the fash is not the same as actively supporting your comrades. I'm not just talking about myself or Southpaw. There are plenty of others who could use your support. There's actually enough of us to all support one another. We just never thought about it because we're just used to consumerism rather than active mutual support. We're also never going to be as popular as the right in the combat sports space. But we don't need to be. We just need solidarity among the numbers we already have. Sometimes we just need a reminder. Also, many of you were supporting the Sanders campaign every month. Well, he's out of the race, but we're still in the game. So we're once again asking for that financial support instead. I also recognize many of you are also in difficult financial situations. And Paul and I appreciate you following us and telling your friends about us. If that's the only aid you can give, that's more than enough. This is Sam. This is Joe. And this is Southpaw. Today on Southpaw, we have author and podcaster, Joe Kasabian. Hi, Joe. Hey, how's it going? Good. So uh, I think there's a lot of overlap between us as we both occupy spaces that have a lot of reactionaries, though I will say leftist veterans have a rich history, whereas with leftist martial arts, it's fairly new. There's only like 50 of us. (laughs) So since we're still fledgling, do you have any tips for us? Um, you know, I, th- I feel like, uh, especially as someone who's orbited the, uh, the, the martial arts sphere for phew, probably a decade now, um, not, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm like a terrible, uh, BJJ player and even worse at judo. Uh, <laughs> never, I've, I've never been very good. I've just been enthusiastic. Um, 
You know, it's it, I, I feel like especially in BJJ uh, uh, spaces, it's it's a lot of the same as like leftist veterans where you exist, but you really don't want to say anything because everyone around you is an absolute fucking shithead. <laughs> um, like I had an experience that like honestly completely uh, mirrored my uh, my experience uh, in the military at a BJJ place in Tacoma. Which I will absolutely dox if anybody's curious because it's ran by a fucking Nazi. But um, it, it was before Trump got elected, and back when I still had faith in electoral politics. Um, uh, and there, I knew that not to like bring up politics in, in in a place like this. Like people had like black sons and like really weird Thor shit on their geese, um, very questionable tattoos, shit like that, uh, and. Like we were stretching out and like somehow the election came up and I was like, I'm keeping my motherfucking mouth closed. Um, and, you know, I kind of tiptoed around the issue and just heard some horrible stuff. And there was another person in the circle who was very obviously uncomfortable. And I, like, you know, maybe they would have said something if I would have said something. And that reminds that reminded me a lot if uh, like back when I was in the military, I was in the army specifically. Um like I was in the military when Obama got elected. So like I saw uh you know people who I thought were generally normal functioning adults start becoming like vehemently racist like openly so um and like obviously a lot of people were very off put by this because I mean I I think most people in the military are probably they just want to get done with their contract, they don't want to get in trouble and they want to get out with their benefits and that's it. They don't want to like get in in depth philosophical or like dialectical debates with anybody, which you shouldn't. You're an enlisted person in the military; it's not going to go great. Um, but like, you know, there's definitely a very vocal contingent that is incredibly right wing, uh, extremists. So to the point that like I remember people openly talking about civil war, race war, uh, killing the president, and like absolute like insane shit. Um, that I'm willing to bet those same people would. I mean, hopefully, report people for saying like you know the same thing about the current president. Um, it's like you shouldn't be in the military and openly talking about shit like that. Uh, but like, what what it was what was became very obvious to me was there was a I'm not going to say they were leftists, but maybe like liberal or even a, a fucking vague shade of centrists that were very very uncomfortable with the conversations going on around them, but they didn't want to say anything because they didn't want to rock the boat. But like, you know, that changed when like, I'm, I've always been kind of an opinionated loudmouth, even in the military, which meant my career went great. Um, and you know, whenever I said something, those people felt comfortable saying something as well. So like, you know, if uh, all it really takes is like, it, it's not, you're definitely not becoming allies by any stretch of the imagination in a situation like that. But you're making the the space more comfortable for someone to say like, Hey, maybe you shouldn't call the president the N word. Like, you know, like uh, if, if more people spoke up, it would become more acceptable for people like you to be in the space. And then maybe the people who were too afraid of saying something would say something, um, you know, it forms like some kind of version of solidarity. If you squint really hard at it, I guess, um, because political politically, I was always, the most left person I ever knew in the military, um, even while I was in, uh, and even especially now that I'm out, because veterans have a tendency to lean into things that make them feel good. Um, 
And it's very easy to feel good if you like side with a group of people who want to like, you know, shake your hand and give you hugs because you went and killed brown people overseas or whatever. Like rather than like, you know, if, if you become a leftist, you have to you have to critically think about the things that you've done and how they impact people. Like you have to understand that like the most formative part of your life, which like even me who like I do not support anything that I did while I was in uniform. I have to accept that that was the most formative part of my life. And it was fundamentally bad. And a lot of people are not ready to deal with that or don't want to deal with that. Um, so they're like, wow, if I go hang out over here, I just like, everybody says I'm great all the time. It's like a, a really dumb golden retriever. He's like, I'm not sure why everybody's calling me a good boy, but this is great. So it's almost like prisoner's dilemma in game theory where the lack of transparency or not knowing how other people feel create this natural divide and conquer. But once that becomes more apparent, then there's like the silent discomfort that starts to surface. Yeah, I, I think I, I think you're absolutely correct. Is like they they end up taking a road that does not make them think too hard about the decisions that they've made. That like because like they know that like a lot of them will openly say they have PTSD. A lot of them will openly say that they've been hurt or like they have they have untreated mental health problems. But they won't squint too hard at the foundational aspects of what gave them those those problems. Like because because thinking about it is 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 harmful. Like it, it doesn't feel good. And they just they they just wanted like drink in like a really badly lit shitty bar with <laughs> other people just like them, and then occasionally go commit hate crimes with their friends, you know, like because in the end they all want to belong to a something bigger than themselves. And I think a lot of people, and this might be the case in people that end up like supporting or or quoting Hitler on Instagram when they're a black belt in BJJ, you know, it's like. <laughs> Which is the actual real thing. Yeah. I, was it Hitler or Goebbels? I can't remember who he quoted now. It was Himmler, because Death Squad. Oh, yeah. My bad. I, I, I shot off both posts, and he he went right down the middle. But, like, you know, it's like they want to belong to something bigger than themselves. And, like, I think this is a guilty of, like, a, a lot of why, like, uh, you know, a lot of uh, martial arts gyms can be c- accused of, like, cult-type cult behavior, because... They foster a togetherness that a lot of people either have never experienced before, which is like normal, normal people, honestly, have mo- is mostly never experienced so that kind of close knit community or they miss it, which is why a lot of veterans end up joining Patriot Prayer or the three percenters or the Oath Keepers or some fucking Nazi bike gang. You know, they, they, they get to dress up as the same as all their buddies and that makes them feel good. Um, and like, I, I honestly don't think until you're in so deep that like wow, all my friends are really into this Hitler character. I, I guess I am now too. Like, I, I feel like that's like kind of how it starts. And like, I'm willing to bet not everyone that trains on the mats with these guys who are quoting Himmler on Instagram were ready to go and like defend the use of like Nazi imagery until they did it. You know, like, I guess this is just what I'm doing today because a part of like, you know, a member of my community is really in Nazis. Okay. You know, um, and I think I'm sure some of them are probably deeply racist and gross, but I I think that they kind of dominate the group and will eventually lead the group in that behavior. Now, if you know that's what that group is by now, and you seek out their seek them out anyway, uh, that tells you who you that tells everybody who you are. You know, uh, when when someone tells you who they are, just just believe them. You know, um, but I think a lot of people didn't start out that way, but now they're just fully pilled, you know, 
it kind of reminds me of how uh, QAnon is spreading. I would even say right now, like 50% of QAnon stuff is not spread by actual like people who would identify as QAnon people, but they're like unwitting QAnon. They're unwittingly spreading that stuff. And I think that goes back to what you were talking about with these groups, whether it's military or martial arts, where maybe a dominant person is doing something, saying something, and that's not what you initially signed up for. You didn't even know that's what it was. And then you kind of unwittingly became a part of it and complicit. And then there comes a decision where you either buy into it or you don't. Yeah. And like when you get to that, when, you, when you're in that deep, and especially in something like BJJ, um, you know, like you, I've been going to this place for, you know, however many years I'm a, a blue belt or, you know, whatever, like, it's kind of like uh, how cults work when it's like if I if I leave now because like at that point you've been going there for so long most of your friends probably also go there yeah uh, so like if I leave that's over like we're not gonna hang out anymore like and this is actually something I've seen in like CrossFit as well and like or, or like generally the fitness industry um, well like well CrossFit c- created a weird nationalist workout cult. And like they, a lot of people ended up joining because they wanted to get in shape. They ended up, all of their personal relationships became tied to the gym. And then, like, when the CEOs and incredibly racist shit, they're like, oh, I guess I have to defend this. Or like the rampant sexism and, you know, just unfair treatment of people that goes on over there. And they're like, well, if I, if I leave, these people aren't going to hang out with me anymore. Like, the, the, these are personal decisions I have to make. Um, and like, a long time ago, I was uh, like, I was a coach at a CrossFit gym, and it was just a terrible job, and I was unqualified for like every CrossFit <laughs> coach. Um, and like, I saw that happen in real time. Like when I moved, um, I only moved down the road, like to the point that like commuting to that place was no longer okay. Like it was just too much. And but I had been going there for years. Like those were pretty much the only people I hung out with. So like when I moved and I couldn't go there anymore, guess how many of those people I still saw? Like none of them. Because once you're no longer part, like you're not one of us anymore, like you've you've been cast out, you know. Um, and I think a lot of people are willing to swallow a lot of disgusting shit so they don't have to go through that. Um, and I, I think that's more the case in like martial arts um, because like I joined a BJJ uh, uh, academy that ended up being really gross, and I I had no way to see that at first. I saw it within like maybe three or four months, uh, so I you know got the fuck out. Uh, but there's a lot of people who um, aren't as terminally on- online as I am <laughs> that, that that don't realize what a lot of these symbols mean. Ah. Um, so like like oh no, it's just a patch on his gi. Like it's, well, it's not a fucking swastika. So like most that's where most people's basic knowledge of like right w- like extreme right wing symbolism ends. It's well, it's not a, it's not lightning bolt and it's not a swastika. Ergo, not a Nazi. Um, so unless unless they actively attempt to educate themselves, and even then they'll be like, "Well, I mean, he's had that on his gi for a really long time, and you know, you know, a fucking sprawl sells it on their website or whatever, so it can't be that bad, you know." So like, you end up having to trick yourself into believing that it's okay, and then like, it, eventually it gets to the point like, "No, I just have to buy it now." I think especially BJJ has one added layer, which is the ranking, because it's notorious for being harder than any other martial art to progress in, right? Black belt can take forever, or even if you get it very quickly, it's not, people call it like you're a prodigy, but it's actually like you put in 10 years worth of hours on the mat in a very short amount of time. So it was like people doing two or three a day training. So if you leave, 
and you're not a black belt, you're like, how do I get my black belt? And if I go somewhere else, it might add three or four more years to my black belt journey, which makes people even more feel like they're stuck. Right. And like, especially like, I think, uh, the BJJ community has a lot in common with the fitness uh, community when it comes to like people of authority, like, well, you know, he got there for a reason. Like, obviously like he's a black belt. So, you know, if this was, if we buy into old timey martial arts ideas, like he's obviously a man of great character mm. as well as great skill. Right. Like, mm-hmm. no, like, like as somebody who practiced judo, like, when you go uh like to uh you know judo uh, dojo like they have pictures of kano everywhere and like he's highly revered and i'm willing to bet if, like and i'm not saying this is true but like if kano was part of like U- unit 731 or whatever in japan they'd be like yeah but you know he he was only you know uh, hit a side part or like you know whatever like they're going to explain a way around that because he's been elevated so much unit 731 were japanese biological terrorists for imperial japan yeah and i think that is the case with literally every black belt I think I've ever met in BJJ. Like even ones who like are, are known to be like sex criminals and abusers. Like people will be like, yeah, but he's a great coach. Like that. So therefore I don't, that girl shouldn't have drank that much or whatever. Like they'll, they'll work their way around it because you know, how can this person be like a legitimate giant piece of shit and still go on to like, uh, you know, represent the highest level of training that we have you know so like so that makes us bad that makes bjj bad therefore he has to be good otherwise i kind of have to accept the bjj culture itself something that i take part in is inherently gross and toxic which it is um especially (laughs) i mean because that's that's what the the gracies made right yeah i mean from the from the very beginning they were kind of bastards early members of the brazilian fascist party how did you get into martial arts? Uh, I actually have to blame the army for that. Um, they have a really bad system that the Gracies help them put in place called combatives. So I enlisted when I was 17. I had never done any fucking martial arts in my life. And they teach you like really, really bad, like white belt escape stuff. And I thought it was like the coolest thing on earth. Uh, so like as soon as I got to uh, where I was living, where like where I was going to be stationed, I went and found a bjj place and like out there there's seriously countless bjj places outside of every military base and i think that that at this point like the culture has just been subsumed by like a really gross military culture which is why like i have a hard time going back to it now but um yeah i I was training on and off for a really long time you said you joined when you were 17 i've heard that before i always thought that meant like you talked to the recruiter when you were 17 but like you had to be 18 by the time you got to boot camp is that not the case? Like you could be 17 and actually in the military? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you can enlist when you're 17. You just have to have a you have to have a, a permission slip signed by your parents, which is as grim as it sounds. You could go off somewhere at 17. Uh hypothetically, yes. Um there is a rule in place that says that you can't deploy to a combat zone until your 18th birthday. That has been broken on multiple occasions. Um, like it pretty much because like you can go to um like your absolutely like your the the unit that you're going to go to um and you can be put into your platoon or whatever uh for me i was in a tank so like i was in a tank uh at 17 and like if and when they deployed i didn't go with them initially but um i caught up to them when i turned 18 but there's mostly it's based on honesty from the unit like i have no doubt that if they're like congratulations you're 18 now 
and like just sent me over anyway. They, nobody would, would be there to stop them. It's pretty much based on honesty, which is not a great thing for the military. And also, you shouldn't be en- enlisting 17-year-olds. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's, it's really, really gross. So even if they were following everything to the letter, basically like you were locked and loaded, ready, and then moment you turn 18, then they send you out. Pretty much. I uh, I was off. Like w- once I turned 18, like there was the, the only change was is that like everybody laughed and said I can now deploy. Like there was there was no functional difference between being 17 and 18 year old in the military. Uh, like I'm still firing, you know, 120 millimeter cannon at a tank range, uh, stuff like that. Like there's no functional difference. They expect you to do the exact same job. And uh, there's multiple occasions of of 17 year olds ending up in uh afghanistan iraq they did crack down a bit on that i think uh, the british army is even worse because you can list at 16 um and i think some of them ended up overseas as well it's all bad like i i don't think that any that you should be able to be recruited for the military until you're at least in your like 21 uh because I mean, teenagers make. I mean, I made horrible decisions when I was twenty-one. I made worse ones when I was seventeen and eighteen. Uh, not to mention, like, you don't know what the fuck you're signing up for. They don't tell you either. I mean, they'll be like, "Yeah, you'll get to like drive a tank around. It's real cool." You think about even like your taste in music or movies back then, and you're like, "Why did I ever like that?" So it's like that person who makes like low stake mistakes. They can go off and sign their life off to something like that. Not to mention. You're, I was a literal child at 17 years old. I mean, I know some people age much faster or whatever, but like when you're 17, you're a kid. No, there's like no, like biologically, you're a child. Like your brain hasn't stopped forming. And then like I went from, you know, graduating high school a year early uh, and like have like, you know, playing computer games and shit and doing dumb shit with my friends. And then I was in basic training like two months later. Like, I had no idea what the fuck. I, like, they're like, why is this guy so bad at everything? Like, because uh, I'm a fucking kid. Like, I'm a child. <laughs> Do sometimes like 25-year-olds, 30-year-olds enlist? Oh, yeah. I mean, I enlisted at like the peak of the Iraq surge. So like uh, enlistment ages got extended. They, I'm pretty sure they would make them lower, too, if they legally could. But they can't. Um, but like, I think they could enlist all the way up to the age of like 36, 37. Um, and there was a few of them in, in my class. Uh, I mean, I was by far the youngest. Uh, there was one other 17-year-old, but he turned 18 within a couple weeks of being there. I didn't turn 18 until I was all the way done with my training and in my unit. Um, but yeah, there was people in their mid-20s, late-20s, early-30s, um, you know, going through their midlife crisis or whatever it is, and then decided to go enlist. Um, you, get, you get everybody from every age, but it's mostly between the ages of 17 and uh, probably 23. As, as most people. So what martial arts have you done and how did you end up in judo? Uh, I mostly did BJJ and then I took a long break and I wanted to get back into it again. And like the, I, that's like the BJJ culture pretty much scared me away. Okay. Um, I tried to like, I went to, a, I went to two different places in Washington and both of them are pretty much copy and paste of the other when it came to all the problems I had. Um, they, one was, a very large place in Olympia and the other one is now a very large place in Tacoma. Uh, but the problems were all still there. People treat each other kind of like shit. Um, you had people like trying to be, you know, whatever they call themselves, uh, you know, alpha wolves or whatever to people <laughs> who were, didn't even know how to close guard yet. And I'm like, man, this is, this is gross. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and then, you know, obviously a BJJ came from judo 
And judo is still held on to most of its traditional aspects of like, you know, bombing your opponent and treating them like shit is heavily frowned upon. Uh, so I went and checked uh, a judo place out in McKenna and they were amazing, really good. Um, the only thing that stopped me from going was the pandemic and then I moved. So, you know, and everything is still closed here in Hawaii. So, you know, whenever... Whenever we're allowed to exist again in, in spaces, I will seek out a place and probably join again. I've seen a lot of people go from BJJ to judo, even people who've gotten their black belts and they're just like, I'm done with this and I'm doing something else. And part of what draws them is not just the culture, but they say it seems to be run more like a co-op or like a nonprofit in that the prices are a lot cheaper yeah. and uh, it doesn't seem like the instructors or everybody's like trying to use this to become a millionaire, which actually some BJJ people are trying to use martial arts to become millionaires, but judo seems much more like a club. Yeah. Like I, the, the place I went to had a standalone business. It was very small. Um, and it was the only one I think in uh, outside of Seattle that I could find in Western Washington that also didn't own a space with like a BJJ place or something else. Um, there was a gold medalist, uh, a judoka gold medalist uh, from the U.S. team named Travis Williams. I might be getting his name wrong. Travis something or other that trained out of a uh, like a YMCA in Lakewood, Washington, because that's like what most judo places are is like you threw out some mats at the local Y or, you know, you have, you have to share space with somebody else. Like there's, there's not room to become a big personality because it, you're not going to become rich. And, and the culture itself is still heavily based uh, where it started. And most judo places in Japan are colleges outside of the main uh, judo place, which is the, the Kodokan, uh, like almost all of it's connected to schools. Uh, so like the, the idea of like standalone places is, is pretty rare outside of big, big cities. I think a lot of people also appreciate where something like judo is not a lifestyle, right? Where if you came from BJJ, you were so immersed in it. It's almost like kind of a nice escape where it's just like, this is my hobby. This is my activity. And that's it. <laughs> and that's cool. Yeah, that was actually a really nice change of pace of it. And it wasn't expected for you to be in there every single day. Like, because like you, you, you really can't uh, in judo because you get bombed. Even, yeah. Like even on crash pads, it shit hurts. Um, and you need to take days off and it's like encouraged that you do so. Um, now I've heard that's a very contradictory to what I've heard in some places that more trained towards co uh, competitive judo, which I was not doing, uh, where it's like, oh, you broke your fingers, tape them up. Like, you know, like most professional, most, uh, competitive sports with a really bad environment would be, uh, they they fit right in. Um, but I, I think that even the the competitive atmosphere of those places is still better than the casual one of a BJJ gym, yeah. which is which is bad. I got my tooth chipped uh, once because a guy like pretty much threw in like a full contact triangle choke. Yeah, and he was he was a purple belt and like a, a very very high skilled one. And I was like, I had like three stripes in my white belt. Yeah. So he like completely fucked my shit up. And so like, I'm like, I need to take a knee after that one. And they're like, oh, you're just going to sit this one out? I'm like, yeah, he broke my face. Like, and it was like seriously frowned upon. Even like non-competitive BJJ schools are like this. Whereas with that type of like, oh, you broke your finger, tape it up. You might only see at a judo school that's like training Olympians. Yeah. Like at any point, like I took a, a bump wrong. You know, I didn't brace myself, which is like they the first thing you're going to learn for the first several weeks of judo uh, before you do literally anything else is learn how to fall. 
Uh, like if I took one wrong, they'd make me go like sit out for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause like, yeah, you get, you get rocked pretty good, especially if you get bombed and you don't land right. That hurts. Yeah. Um, and especially if you're not, if you're not on crash pads and you just hit nothing but regular pads, which you will during, you know, sparring or whatever, uh, like you spar and then like, oh yeah, you got rocked pretty good. You're done for the rest of the time. Switching gears from martial arts a little bit and learning more about you. I think you have a trajectory. I, I think many of our listeners can relate to in another interview. I heard you said you lean liberal, but also have been known to share some libertarian stuff online before you joined the military. But now you're pretty openly a leftist if anybody follows you online. Yeah. So was that more of a paradigm shift or was it more like you weren't political before, so you just kind of defaulted to liberal or libertarian thinking, but once you became political, you found you aligned more with socialism? I honestly, I think it was like a a, gen, a gradual progression, but I, I was always going to end up there uh, because uh, my, like my family immigrated to the United States from Armenia and... Uh, pretty much immediately started like getting treated like shit and i saw that like my family was working their ass off and not getting anywhere and uh, like my my family is pretty pretty leftist uh, at least my my mom is um and mostly because you know when they left the soviet union or when the after the soviet union started falling apart and they could leave um they realized that like wow america kind of isn't that great after all um that we fucked up uh, but also <laughs> You know, Armenia was was in a real bad shape when the the Soviet Union came down. So like they escaped the worst of it. But you know, they assumed that things were better over here. And then like my mom remarried and married a guy who had fought in the Vietnam War and had joined the SDS after he got back, and became like a, a street activist um, for for you know for peace marches and things like that. For people who don't know what SDS is, can you tell people what that is? Yeah, it's uh, the Students for a Democratic Society. Uh, they were a very anti-war, explicitly leftist group uh, that formed during uh, Vietnam. And uh, a lot of veterans ended up joining it uh, when they got back. Um, and, you know, they they were the ones that were doing uh, peace marches and take, like uh, student strikes, taking over student buildings. They got shot at at Kent State um, and a few other places. Um, not that they managed to hit any of them at Kent State. They hit a whole bunch of innocent bystanders. Uh, but, uh, but so like, I've, I've always kind of heard some, um, some form of leftism for most of my life. Um, and and the, I kind of defaulted to being more of like a, a lib, uh, mostly because it was the most easily consumable thing. Cause this is like before the internet for the most part, like unless you go down to the local library and crack open like m- some marks or whatever, you're not going to find anything that's going to introduce you to the, what could be considered leftism. Um, and then slowly I s- started, uh, realizing like, you know, I don't like the government. They're obviously, they, they're not so great at what they do, what they're doing. So that led me to like the next thing that was easily consumable, which was kind of like weird um, Paul era libertarianism, uh, which I quickly realized like, oh, wow, I'm surrounded by racists. This isn't good. You're talking about Ron Paul, right? Yeah, yeah. And like, because like I was anti-war and he was the only one that was anti-war. So I'm like, well, shit, this guy seems pretty good. And then I realized like, wow, there's a lot of Nazis around here. This is weird. But like I didn't have I, I I didn't rekindle my love affair with like a government after that, uh, so I went further left. Um, I definitely like I consider myself a socialist now, but I'm also an anarchist. Um, 
I, I don't believe uh, in government hierarchies whatsoever. Uh, uh, they're incredibly harmful from obviously from everything we're looking at. Just like this is me gesturing wildly at everything that's happening right now. Like, look at what the government has done. Uh, but you know, it's it was a, it was a definitely a progression because like up until very recently, I wouldn't even consider myself an anarchist. Um, it was because uh, it's 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 a it's a label that people give themselves. And I think it, it's been, I mean, you've seen how it's been used as a negative term. Like whenever anybody loots anything or burns down a building or, or something that like this, that like, you know, anybody in, in, in centrist circles or right wing or, or even liberal circles are, is not okay. Like, oh, this is a fucking white anarchist that are doing this. Like, it, so like it, it's a word that people use without really knowing what it means. So like, I wasn't comfortable calling myself that for a very long time because for a very long time, I assumed that when I thought of anarchists, I thought of like edgy high school kids or something. Um, when I realized like, no, there's actually quite a bit of political theory behind this. Uh, and that's, that's when I realized that that's kind of what I am. I mean, I, I don't like to like, I'm, I'm generally a leftist, which is very fair to say. Um, but I I think that that has been the uh, a common trend for a lot of people, especially you know 2016 2015 when I like I first noticed Bernie Sanders like 2014 2015 uh, when he because he came out uh, when he was on the uh, the Veterans Board uh, the Veterans Benefits Board or Veterans Affairs Boards whichever it was and he you know, said like hey if you can't afford to take care of veterans you can't afford to have a war and you know obviously saying that now i'm like well maybe you just don't have them anyway bernie but like um you know he he was the first one to really openly talk about that and then i learned more and more about him and learned like he's literally always been about uh been against this stuff so like i obviously like a lot of people i got really on the bernie train in 2016 he was like a gateway drug absolutely yeah like because like you know when you're reading books from dead white guys from 100 years ago i'm like this this makes a lot of sense I don't fucking see it. Like uh, everybody out here is like owned by General Dynamics, or you know, they're they're. It, it's like now the 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 the, the perfect example of uh, of a liberal politician is like you know w- when people in Seattle and Portland and everywhere else like stop sending federal stormtroopers to fucking kidnap us. Um, you know the the Republicans just uh, just say no, and like the liberals will say like you know in twenty years half those stormtroopers will be women of color. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, it's so it's like, fuck, man. Like it, it's nice that when I, when I saw Bernie Sanders, I realized that like this can actually work. Like there, there, there can actually be someone in power that has the same ideas as I do. And then I quickly realized that was not entirely true. <laughs> uh, and I realized that like, you know, left, they're not going to let like the powers of capital are never going to allow themselves to be voted out of office. Like why, why would you centralize all of this power and then just, quietly give up and move away into the night as you lose an election uh you know like so it, it was a very rapidly uh learning like is a, is a lesson for me to learn um that i am still a leftist but then i also realized that we can't work in their power structures so that led me to believe and led me to understand that the power structures themselves are the problem and they should go away uh and that's kind of where i am today i'm completely separate from the mainland in hawaii and has absolutely no no power anywhere (laughs) (laughs) so basically regardless of uh the outcome of the elections for you politics is direct action it's about what you can do locally or directly yeah i mean i would never encourage anybody to not go vote um you know it's your it's your right 
uh, and you should exercise it. I just don't think that it has as much power as people believe it does. And the one thing that does have power is direct action, whether that be fixing taillights or running a food bank or volunteering your time as a street medic during protests or showing up to protests. Um, those things are all more effective. Uh, no civil rights have ever been given. None of them have ever been voted for. They've all been fought for, and that will continue to be the case. Uh, they're not just if people if they were going to accept what you were fighting for as a civil right, they would have given it to you a long time ago. <laughs> it has to be drug away bit by bit, and yeah, and it's not fucking pretty. Like people are uh, obviously. I'm I'm 32. I was not around for the civil rights marches. And and while they remained largely peaceful, that was not always the case. And white liberals still thought they were going about it the wrong way. This actually connects to what we were just talking about with your time in the military, because there is this weird belief, and you must hear it all the time, that the military goes out and fights for our freedom. There's this bait and switch. You'll see TV commercials or public service announcements where celebrities or athletes will thank the troops for defending our freedom. And it's like, our freedom here? You're talking about civil rights, right? Like rights that women have, people of color have, whether it's to vote, own property, whatever. Debate and switches, oh, they fought over there or military is doing something I don't know about. And that's why I have civil rights here. To your point, that's not, no, that's not what happened. Like the people who were protesting and agitating and, and fighting for it here are the reason why we have it. Do you know what I mean? Like, you must get that all the time. It's like, oh, thank you for giving me my civil liberties and my civil rights. <laughs> Man, it's wild. How'd my freedom end up in Kabul? I, I don't understand. <laughs> Even when we were fighting fascism in Europe, black people couldn't share a water fountain with a white person. No, when the war was over, they came back and they could now, right? <laughs> yeah. We, congratulations. We defeated racism in Germany. Yeah. <laughs> when you come back here, you're not people anymore. Also, like... You know, like they had to literally fight for the right to die in combat, like and then be treated like shit when they got home. Uh, it's insane. It, and like that, you know, we fought for freedom and like we defeated fascism in Europe is things that like banners people like to hang up like a championship banner. Like, look what we did. Yeah. Like and there's like 30 fucking asterisks underneath of it of all the things that we continue doing that are fucking terrible. Uh, it, like, yeah, liberating concentration camps is and arguably a good thing yeah however look at everything we forgot at home yeah <laughs> like, yeah you can't fight for freedom and and liberty and democracy anywhere if you don't have those things at home you're just exporting all the problems you already had which is why we immediately rehab the fucking uh nazi army <laughs> so we could recreate the west german army to stand against communism like we didn't it's not that we were against fascism we were against that fascists were fighting our allies and then attacked us. There's a, there's a very, very, very possible scenario in history where we're cool with Hitler. Like, people don't seem to understand that. Yeah, that was like a, a, a fear a lot of the countries in Europe had. Which side is the U.S. going to take? Yeah, for a long time, nobody really knew. And if, if Japan would not have attacked us, we probably wouldn't have taken any side, which when you're fighting literal Nazis is the side of Nazis. Yeah. People also have this weird idea that the U.S. were fighting the war from the beginning, and it's like they got in at the tail end. 
No, they were making money off of it. I mean, the Lens Lease, the Lens Lease Act was like one of the greatest grifts in human history. I mean, did it help defeat the Nazis? Yeah, absolutely. But it was also killer for our economy. We didn't give a fuck about the Nazis. It was about that money, man. We gave so much shit uh, to the UK and the Soviet Union and anybody else that wanted it for pretty much just blank checks. Let's go back to your personal history now. Uh, you said your family came from Armenia. Did they come from Armenia directly to Detroit? Yeah, my uh, they stopped in Detroit for all reasons in which I've never been able to ascertain, uh, and, <laughs> and that's where I grew up. Like, it's weird because like most Armenians go to Glendale, California, or like the greater LA area. Mine got like quarter of the way there. Like this is a fucking long ass journey. We're done. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then I grew up in the same area. I, I was like one of the first people to leave as soon as I could when I when I turned seventeen and enlisted. But yeah, it's um, it's an interesting place to grow up. Um. I don't reg- I don't regret it, but I certainly have no intentions on moving home. Where you grew up, then was there also a large Armenian population there? I was around uh, like uh, two or three other Armenian families, but it was mostly uh, we mostly lived around Chaldeans, which are Iraqi Christians, um, which led to like really interesting parts of uh, of, of things like when. It was like when the 9-11 attacks happened. Um, uh, Americans are too dumb to realize that like Iraqi Christians aren't Muslims. And so like when they wanted to commit hate crimes, they just targeted our neighborhood. Uh, so like it, it was it, as a white guy, it, it really most most white people don't uh, go through persecution. And I did through ignorance. Like they assume that I have a funny last name. I'm kind of olive tinged. I must be a Muslim. So, you know, I got my ass kicked a couple times, called all sorts of slurs. Um, cops didn't care because they're cops. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was really eye opening because, you know, that's why like a lot of people like to bring back like, yeah, I wish we were just unify like we were after 9-11. I'm like, someone put a fucking brick through my window of my bedroom. <laughs> you know, like, like I got my ass kicked like on the reg for weeks because people thought I was Muslim or Arab and I'm neither. <laughs> like, uh, not, not that like, and I don't mean to say that, like, if I was, that would have been fine. But, like, you know, the, I got to experience the, the ignorance and the racism that is a part of, like, those people's everyday life. By accident. Yeah, but by but through sheer accident and dumb white people. Uh, because I tell I never saw any non-white person come through my neighborhood and slash tires and shit. Uh, and they were all from the suburbs. None of them were from the city. Uh and it was it was really eye opening, and I think from there is kind of like when I realized that a lot of the stuff that I was told growing up in school, especially of like America being this like melting pot of ultimate freedom or whatever, is like this is this isn't great. Like <laughs> we have so many problems because like that that was also one of the, one of the the more radicalizing moments of my life. Where as a white man, you're pretty much told if you ever have a problem, you can call the cops and everything will be fine. And I realized that's absolutely not true. Um, like you know, I we called the cops. They said that like nothing, there's nothing we can do. Uh, you know, maybe you should just stay inside because people are mad. You know, uh, like so. You're uh, you're fixed to this. This literal hate crime that occurred is like it's our fault, and we need to stay inside. Like that. That is what uh, the Detroit Police Department is telling <laughs> us. Okay, cool, thanks. So that kind of uh, inadvertently opened your eyes then to a lot of injustices. It it really did. Um, I I 
I don't want to say I wish every white person would have to experience racial prejudice, but like, you know, like it would change a lot if you had to literally sit through a day in somebody else's shoes and see the shit that they have to go through. Like it, maybe you would actually fight to change it. And that, that was something that stuck out to me. It was like when I enlisted, I was mostly around white guys. Um, and I told them like, you know, there's actually quite a bit of racism, uh, in the United States. They're like, no, there's not. You're from the North. What are you talking about? Like, <laughs> okay yeah i get that here also like i'm in la so there must be no racism here yeah racism has been defeated by eric garcetti yeah (laughs) so going into where you grew up you didn't grow up around a lot of armenians like uh you mentioned uh, armenians do in california but you grew up around a couple families was armenian history then something you always knew about growing up or did you have to discover it on your own because like here in la once a year you see cars, like lots of cars with banners and flags all about Armenian genocide. There, there's a few things in Armenian history that every Armenian will know about simply through, because like, it's almost like uh, inher- inherited trauma or whatever, right? Like the, we, a, as a group of people, the, the, the genocide is always talked about uh, from a young age. Um, and I think like in my family specifically, uh, and I can't speak for others because a lot of Armenians are quite reactionary. Um, that like it was always used as a lesson as to why you should never dislike someone because of who they are because like this is like that's what killed us you know um it, it's like you should never hate someone for the way they look you should never judge someone for their religion or their culture because like that's that's what caused this and that was always taught to me at a very young age um and of course like Every April, we always uh, celebrate, uh, celebrate's not the word, but commemorate the the genocide and things like that. Um, I don't think you can go to any Armenian family and, and ever find anybody who's ignorant of it. I think it's, I don't like to compare it to the Holocaust, but it's very similar in that, like, you, you're never going to meet a, a Jewish family who's not deep, uh, not intimately connected to the Holocaust because it's very recent uh, in traumatic history and it almost certainly affected their family. I think uh, Armenian genocide is something, though, most people outside of the Armenian community are not aware of. So can you kind of give us uh, an explainer about what that is? Yeah. Uh, so during World War I, uh, the Ottomans, at the time, Armenia was part of the Ottoman Empire. And uh, uh, Ottoman Empire was kind of falling apart. It was known as the sick man of Europe, and it was slowly falling to the tides of nationalism. And uh, as the Balkans broke away, um, Armenians and uh, Syrians and Georgians and uh, everyone else kind of wanted to do their own thing. They realized this empire wasn't really going great for them. And that's when World War I started. Armenians are... are, uh, by almost 100% Christian. There's a, uh, there's a small uh, Muslim population currently. I'm not sure how big it is. But in the day, it was mostly known as Armenians or Christians because we were the first nation uh, to make Christianity our national religion uh, uh, before before everybody else. And uh, and so at, at World War One, we had Tsar Nicholas II, an incredibly inept fucking idiot, decided that, uh, and actually, I say that, but I'm about to say the good things that he did, uh, which is probably the only good thing he ever did, uh, is uh, people knew that Armenians in, in Eastern Anatolia were being pretty badly persecuted by the Ottoman people uh, and the Ottoman government for simply being Christian. 
and not assimilating. Like Armenians refused to change their name to be Turkish names, uh, refused to con- uh, convert to Islam, refused to like tear their churches down, things like that. So persecution started. There was multiple massacres um, and pogroms. Uh, there was uh, mass deportations and concentration camps. There was death camps, um, and like th- things spread pretty quick, especially when Armenians began running east into Russia. Uh, for protection. So the Russians learned pretty quickly what was happening. And that was one of their main reasons for invading the Ottoman Empire during World War One was to take over the eastern part and protect the population and obviously to do imperialism. But, you know, they had an excuse uh, and to stop the killings. Uh, and by the end of it, they killed around 1.5 million Armenians, which is a massive part of the population. Um, to this day, there's significantly fewer armenians in armenia than the rest of the world because everybody ran um and that's why most armenians also speak russian uh and also you know that's why armenia ended up becoming part of the soviet union but yeah it was a genocide fueled by ethno-nationalism like pretty much every other one uh and a lot of people don't know about it because there was never i mean the un didn't exist um you know nato didn't exist there was no international body to hold anybody accountable. And after the war, uh, the main perpetrators of the genocide went and lived in Europe for a long time. Uh, the only people who ever attempted to hold them accountable uh, at a criminal level was Turkey. Uh, and then that, it, but Turkey was locked in the middle of a civil war. And then a guy named Kemal Ataturk, uh, known as, was pretty much considered the founder of modern Turkey, was willing to. Uh, pardon everybody that was involved in the genocide if they worked for him and uh, ever since turkey has denied the genocide uh and since they're a member of nato uh they kind of get to make that the mainstream thought um but the guys who committed the genocide and ordered the genocide uh slowly got murdered uh by Ar- armenian vigilantes in the streets <laughs> of germany <laughs> Maybe you can connect the dots for us. In LA, the rich areas have little to no military recruitment offices. Mm-hmm. However, the poor areas are brimming with them. Shocking. Can you explain to us the connection between poverty, hopelessness, being young, and military service? Yeah, I mean, like the for most people that grew up, you know, a single family home or you know, even like lower, lower middle class inner cities, even like kind of the more rundown rural areas, there's no way you're going to, you know, th- there's no way for s- social movement, right? Like America has made a very, very, very certain that if you're born poor, you will die poor. If your parents didn't go to college, you probably won't go to college. Also, you can't afford college. So good luck. Um, if you have any health problems, you're fucked because you can't afford health care. You know, we've effectively created uh, rigid individualism for the poor. Um, the only one way for poor people to move up is the military. And I, I, I have a hard time believing that was not designed that way. Um, so you'll see, especially in my high school, a lot of high schools like it. Um, it, it they're constantly a recruiters there. And, uh, you know, at, at lunch, they'll be hanging out. They'll come to your class. They'll hang out in the hallway. Your school will just give them your phone number. Um, and I've heard, like, especially now, they'll contact you via social media. Um, and because they, they know, they know what they're doing. Like, you enlist, you get college, unless you get kicked out or whatever. You'll get free college, you'll get free healthcare, you know. And for the last 20 years, that's only upon threat of possibly being murdered via IED or being badly maimed, you know. Um, you, like, 
America has socialism, but only if you pay in blood. And that's how you get it. Um, and they don't recruit heavily in rich areas because they don't need to. Those the, the same group of rich people that have their, uh, you know, their parents have the means of maybe going into a, a certain amount of debt to put them through college, or maybe they can just afford it. Maybe they're a legacy of some kind. They know that they don't have to recruit them. If if they fell for all the propaganda that everybody else did by watching movies and seeing how the brave soldiers salute some stupid fucking flag in an NFL game or whatever, or they just really like NASCAR, like those people will show up and recruit themselves. Uh, you'll probably have the same return one way or another, um, or they'll just go to college and become officers, right? Like you want them to go do that. Um so by snagging all those people that can afford college, you're kind of, it's kind of self-defeating, right? Like, if we enlist all these people to be stupid fucking privates, we'll lose all of our lieutenants. Um, and West Point doesn't put out that many, you know? Uh, most of them probably come from uh, ROTC programs at the local colleges. Uh, so if you stuff your local badly underfunded high school full of recruiters and give them an incredible quota to meet, which they, I think they've slowed down on that a bit. But in the heydays, like during the surges, that uh, recruiters would be forced to work like 18 to 20 hours a day trying to get kids to enlist. There was quotas, like sales quotas? Yes, effectively, yeah. And like if you didn't meet them, you got fired. Um, and like if you lost your position as a recruiter, that was really bad for your career. So, you know, you have all these things actively working against the children of America and not being murdered by the Taliban. So basically, then, if every person in America had health care, housing as a human right and free college, recruitment would be a lot lower. Yeah. If we had a normal functioning society, the military would definitely suffer because, <laughs> um, I mean, then they would have no carrot. Right. They'd only have a stick like there's always going to be people that think that, like, I mean, uh, undoubtedly, shooting machine guns and blowing things up with cannons is very, very cool. Like, it, it's a lot of fun. If you do it on like a mountainside or whatever. Um, and there will always be people that think that's cool enough where you can go sign a contract. Uh, the vast majority of people think that those things are kind of cool, but also they want to go to school or they want to like learn a skill. You know, those are most people that end up enlisting. I mean, obviously, I have no hard statistics on that. But I mean, the military and the government is fighting against those things. And it's not for the budgetary concerns. Money isn't real. If they cared about money, they wouldn't have gave a trillion dollars to the fucking cruise lines, right? Like, <laughs> it, those those things are immaterial to actual life, but they'll dump trillions and trillions of dollars into them. But like, how about two years of community college and healthcare? Like, no, can't do it. <laughs> but if you enlist, and like you know, and that ends up engendering a lot of hatred uh, in veterans uh, when they get out because they went through that to to get the things that they have and i'm not saying that this is this is an okay thing to feel it's just common and so when when you have people like you know like us or leftists in general who be like you know we aren't asking a lot we're just asking for the state to do something for us like this is literally like that scene from office space with, except like instead of the guy with the glasses it's the entire federal government and people are just like, so what would you say you do here? Like, we pay you endless amounts of money, and all you do is crank out drones and cops. Like, why can't we have fucking healthcare? Why <laughs> Why do you exist? You know, so you get veterans like, well, I got healthcare, and all I had to do was go enlist, so they're still recruiting. 
uh, one that's incredibly fucking ableist because <laughs> like obviously not everybody can enlist uh and everybody absolutely shouldn't enlist in fact nobody should enlist um you know but until the time comes where like there's a- another form of upward mobility available like i have a hard time telling people they shouldn't like who am i to tell someone like look them in the eye and be like you don't deserve to go to college you know um and that's kind of what they're doing right like they control the levers of power and they're not going to give them up and instead of like most people don't get out and realize like wow people shouldn't have to go through that to get what i have it's the exact opposite like i did it why can't you like i don't know cuz they have untreated diabetes cuz they don't have fucking health insurance you know like the, these two things aren't the same um uh, you know and it's it's incredible that, that that's what happens but that's the the general mood that is formed by that very few people come out enlightened in any way <laughs> about what they went through um and i think that's generally how the u.s treats its lower class its lower castes right like it's rigid in- individualism it's rigid laissez-faire capitalism um you know it's effectively the uh you know the 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 might is right of the poor like if you can do x we will give you y if you can't do that good luck we're not giving you shit you might get 300 dollars a month from social security or whatever but we're not gonna give you health care we'll probably close down your polling site and we're then we're gonna defund your school like you know so it's like you will have to show yourself to be physically capable of being of use to the the ruling capital class in order to to gain anything from the taxes that you pay that that you're definitely paying on whatever shitty lower paid job that you had before you enlisted because I know I fucking was I do also notice a dichotomy where they're either super right wing or sometimes they're leftist either they drink the Kool-Aid or they realize it's all Kool-Aid now it's not like a 50-50 split I've I've seen some I mean there's a lot of leftist veterans out there and we're very loud and we won't shut up um <laughs> maybe that's why you all seem bigger like there's more of you <laughs> We, we we have to be loud because I mean we know we're insufferable. We just have to yell more. Um, and you know, there's like I didn't think that it was okay for me to openly talk about being a leftist veteran until I ran into more, uh, specifically a podcast called Hell of a Way to Die, which I don't work for. That's not really a plug, uh, <laughs> but like like that legitimately was one of those things that like holy shit, I'm not alone. I can fucking talk like this, like you know, like these guys they have a platform they're talking for us, you know? And like, I eventually found those guys and like, I found more people like them and and we exist. It's either a, you're like me and you don't shut up about it or B you're afraid to come like say anything. Cause you're afraid of like losing friends. Maybe your family isn't ready for you to be like, actually all this flag stuff is bad, you know? Like, cause you know, when, it, when you o- become be, when you start openly talking about being a leftist, you're going to alienate someone in your life. hundred percent. It's going to happen. If you just stay quiet and you end up like Pete Buttigieg, <laughs> like people will probably accept you more and you'll end up saying weird shit like weapons of war don't deserve, don't need to be in the streets of America, but they're totally fine when we use them on brown people, you know, like, or you end up being any other weird centrist lib veteran who says like you know trump's bad and i didn't fight for the country for this to to be this way like man you're leaving a lot out like and and that's like i think that's the normal stopping point 
is that they'll they'll correct, start moving left, hit Democrats who make them feel good about being veterans too, because like you know effectively they're the tokens of the Democratic Party, right? Like the the Democrats like cling on to them because they think that they can hold veterans and and like shake them at conservatives and be like, see, veterans like us too. And it's not going to fucking do anything. It's the, it's the same reason why they push like Amy McGrath to run for Senate when she's woefully underqualified just because she fl- fucking flew a jet. And she's still going to get owned by Mitch McConnell because it's Kentucky. Uh, like, you know, you see shit like that all the time and that that makes them feel good, too, because, again, you can become an anti-war lib and not have to fundamentally criticize what you did. Woo woo. I'm just a little soldier. I didn't do anything bad. The whole war is bad, right? Like, rather, if you move further left, you have to personally criticize yourself. Like, I I made this choice, right? With that kind of experience, it just seems like you would either be like, no, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not going to come to terms with this, and I'm I'm just going to go hard right wing. Right. Or I have to come to terms with it. I didn't think there would be some kind of middle ground. Yeah, it's the calm nougaty center of feeling nothing. Like, you, you don't... If you become, like, a liberal or a centrist, you can become anti-war... But you don't stand for anything because you're not taking personal accountability for your actions. Like you get it. Like I know I never committed any war crimes, but I also know by being there, I committed an illegal act. Like that's something that a lot of people aren't willing to accept. Like I never did anything illegal there, but my very presence was immoral, unethical, and illegal. And then you you know you get people who don't want to go that far and be like, well, I didn't commit any war crimes. Period. <laughs> Even outside of politics, it just sounds like not a good way to just heal either. No, you never process your trauma that way because even if you went over there and worked a desk job, you know, you're surrounded by war. You you probably had rockets fired at you. You probably heard the sirens of people getting hurt. Um, you know, you you absorb that in various like you don't have to pull triggers to absorb trauma. And I think that's something that uh, the, the very toxic sectors of the veteran community have made sure to constantly talk about of like you didn't have ptsd you didn't even get shot at like you don't fucking have to it's like this this the s doesn't stand for soldier like get the fuck over it you know um but like if you if you never fully process what you went through like you know there's there's something to be said about like moral trauma and ethical trauma like how do you process these things um, you know, how do you, how do you process and get over the, these ideas where you did something that was intrinsically bad and you committed trauma against an entire group of people you did not know just by existing in a space? Um, you have to be able to process all those things. And if you're like, you know, the war in Afghanistan is bad, it should have ended 10 years ago, like, or it just didn't need to happen, <laughs> you know, or like the war or you get like the really weird centrist take of like. The war in Iraq was bad. It didn't have to last that long. Like almost had it. Try again. Take another fucking swing. You know, it's it, it it's a way to cop the fuck out. And I think that's something that a lot of people feel comfortable in. It's like it's a lot like being uh, you know, like your mom or your older friend or maybe your friend that will like black out their profile picture and say black lives matter and then be like all the way up until something breaks cuz like you know, it's like, oh, Black Lives Matter when it's considerate. You know, like I don't like I don't like to be personally offended by this. It's like war is bad until I have to confront what I did at war. <laughs> you know, like you can't have it both ways. It's a fucking cop. It's like having one foot out the door of like any of anything. You're not committed to anything. You didn't change anything, and you don't stand for anything. It's fucking gross. 
Um, and like that's why I strongly dislike most liberal demo- most liberal Democrats who happen to be veterans because they're wearing that shit like a badge. They don't own what they did, and they don't own what they probably voted for, you know. And you know they hope that you'll forget about it. I don't know, or or they'll be like, "Well, Donald Trump dodged the draft." That's actually the best thing about him. You know, like, why are you holding his best quality against him? I <laughs> like, it's literally the only human thing I've ever heard him doing. And you're going to hold that up? I'd fucking dodge the draft, too. I'd dodge that shit tomorrow. You know, it, it's like, and they'll have, um, like, was it Tammy Duckworth who lost her legs in Iraq, which is awful. I wish that never happened. But, like, and the, the, the Democratic Party will hold people like her up who, from my understanding, doesn't have the worst voting record on Earth and like e- expect like the the mythical swing voter to like vote for the Democrats now because we have a veteran too. Like, and it's it's they're swinging for the fences and hitting absolutely nothing. Uh, and they're doing it in the worst way possible. And I think a lot of that has to do with this the same people who don't want to own up for their actions and their choices but still want to fly like the veteran circle jerk flag like war is bad but also can i please have my discount at chili's you know like you can't have it both ways you have to dis- you you have to like disenfranchise that power base of being obsessed with veterans all the time in order for any of this to ever work and nobody will ever commit to it so therefore like can I have my discount at Chili's? Like, I, like I don't like. There's no way to confront that, right? Like, you can point out how how bad this is. You can point out like saying that these weapons that are killing kids in school in the United States only belong in Afghanistan, where they're also killing kids, and and have that disconnection. Or you can be a fucking human being, and I don't think a lot of people are are able to quite do that. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you'll help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, And you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. I think people like view things in a monolithic lens where it's all the same thing, right? Every branch, every different tier of the military is all one and the same, right? And I think a lot of that comes from like lack of education or they just don't know. So from government contractors to soldiers or just like grunts to Navy SEALs to CIAs all consider like all the same thing. So can you tell us a bit more about these special forces or special operatives? It's it's hard for me to grapple with how the Navy SEALs still exist after everything that's happened. Um, because it's becoming increasingly clear that they're literally a death squad. Uh, there's little difference between them and like the CIA special action division or whatever they're called. Like they're just committing murder. What about like those like government contractor, like Blackwater? Oh, they're just called mercenaries. Okay. Are they like closer to that? 
Um, well, Blackwater doesn't technically exist anymore, but while they did exist, they did all sorts of awful shit to include a mass shooting, I believe, at El Mansour Square in Baghdad, uh, where they killed, oh, probably a dozen people, uh, just machine gunning people in the streets. On behalf of the U.S. government? On behalf of the, yeah, uh, absolutely wearing an American flag on their shoulder. I put good money on it. And you also mentioned the CIA SAD? Yeah, they're like, they're the straight up death squads and make people disappear. Uh, they're the actual people on the ground doing things for the CIA and all the awful things that they do. So would you say then those parts of the government are closer to those mercenaries then? I mean, the lines are very blurred. Um, a lot of the people that go through the SEALs will end up working for a private military contractor or the CIA or a CIA contractor in some various form or another to the point that like differentiating them is very hard, which is probably the point. It's almost like interchangeable then. Yeah, it's just they make more money doing one thing than the other, and they end up doing the same job. Uh, yeah, it's it, it, it's a culture thing where, especially since the global war on terror, before that, uh, the Navy SEALs, um, the Army Green Berets, and to a lesser extent, like the other branches, special forces, which largely have been stayed out of controversy uh, until very recently, uh, were weren't considered anything like unspeakably cool or awesome or anything like they were just considered special forces like better than regular soldiers but in skill only um and ever since the global war on terror started like it's pretty much become a cult um mostly due to overuse uh misuse and incredibly high recruitment rates um expanding numbers and no oversight whatsoever so what do you mean by cult uh, to the point that, like, a good example is the case of Eddie Gallagher, who uh, is a Navy SEAL who, without a doubt, murdered a wounded child. Um, it was uh, a, a child soldier for ISIS. I think he was, I think they said he was 15, 14 or 15, um, was wounded by gunfire and was being treated by a Navy SEAL medic, which is how, which is how the Geneva Convention works. If you, if, if a enemy is wounded, you have to render care to them to the best of your abilities. Um, it, and until they dead, or if unless it's not safe. Um, so while the medic was treating them, Eddie Gallagher walked up and stabbed him in the neck. So you mean like an actual cult where like everybody has drank the Kool Aid? Kind of. Um, to the extent that he did this, thinking he was going to get away with it because nobody was ever going to report him. It's like the blue wall of silence that you see in police officers, but like also the government supports it. Um, and. Well, I guess the government supports that one too, but, (laughs) (laughs) uh, but like, you know, he would, he thought that all the people in his SEAL team would never report that. Um, so like he could get away with it, but they did report it. Uh, but then they quickly backtracked on that and the medic, uh, went back to saying he did it. So he couldn't sell out somebody in his team. Like it's attitudes like that, where we will willingly lie and cover up war crimes for the group, um, even if like it's abhorrent and stands against literally everything that you should stand against. Oh, so cult as in like doing whatever you can for the protection of the group. Yeah, and like to the point that you're willing to destroy yourself because like going on going on the stand at a at a military trial and changing your story, which you wrote to implicate yourself in a murder means your career is done and uh, like because they're not going to try the medic but that means he openly committed perjury he like he perjured himself against his own statement so they could not use his statement against eddie gallagher so like now everybody involved is their life's 
going to be over. I mean, I'm sure they're going to get some talking time with like Tucker Carlson or whatever, but like that that's it, right? Like they're willing to hemorrhage their entire life for a fancy badge and a uniform. It's like Godfather kind of stuff. Yeah, it's exactly what it is. Um, you know, and and you didn't really hear about stuff like that quite before, like going all the way back to the establishment of special forces. Um, like the Green Berets during Vietnam, and uh, I guess the SEALs, you could say, were ex- uh, established during the Korean War. Uh, that wasn't what it was. It was like just people with a special set of of training to do a very specific job. So special meant like special skills. Yeah, it, w- it wasn't like the, you, you guys are going to go be a death squad or anything like that. <laughs> like the SEALs started... Um, as they're called Navy frogmen and their job is to be uh, saboteurs, blow things up or also recover the bodies of downed airmen um, when they went down in like the ocean and stuff. Uh, And like green berets and the Vietnam war, they're supposed to be what's called a force multiplier, which is you get like, you go into the jungles and they, for the, in Vietnam is the mountain yard people um, that were uh, against the, 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 the Northern Vietnamese government. And train them to be guerrilla soldiers. So, like, you have 10 Green Berets or whatever, and you multiply that force by 500 because you just trained 500 mountain yards. It, it wasn't because they were, like, really, really good, super ultra soldiers or whatever. It was a, a damn near suicide mission, and they took it. Um, but that was what their job is supposed to be. Uh, fast forward after 20 years of the global war on terror, now look at them. They're more like hitmen. Pretty much. And you don't go against the family, Fredo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like a good example of that is there was a SEAL and Marine Raider team that murdered a U.S. uh, uh, Army Green Beret in Mali or Niger. I can't remember which one. And it was effectively because he saw that they were stealing money and he was going to report them. So they killed him. That is like mafia style stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he was going to hurt the group, so he had to get fucking whacked. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I wonder if they even use that term. He needs to get whacked. Probably. So then you've kind of illustrated how ugly war can be. Do you think anti-war then is a popular sentiment for most Americans, like regardless of politics? No, absolutely not. Because they've never seen it. Like, you know, uh, Americans have never faced war at home, ever. And not in living memory. The last time that America was invaded was in 1812. You know, uh, Americans maybe internalized 9-11. And after New York got attacked and people in New York absolutely lived through an act of war. It killed 3,000-ish people. And instead of um, having some kind of empathy towards people who we bomb, it only made them want to do it more. Right? Like, and uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm not saying that like people who saw the 9/11 attacks um, didn't it, absorb an incredible amount of trauma. They absolutely did. Um, it, but you would think you you would think it, it would involve some kind of empathy eventually at some point. I know not immediately because everybody's thinking about revenge. Um, but you know, most people in America don't know what war is. They are not familiar with war. They're not familiar with what it sounds like, what it smells like, and what it tastes like. They've never seen an act of war, um, and that's why they they are completely disconnected. They might know somebody who have deployed and fought. They might know somebody who got killed, um, but they've never seen it. Like the version of the war they see is like a five second clip on the news, 
um, and maybe a funeral every once in a while. They've never seen what happens when a, when a drone strikes a school. They've never seen what happens when the U.S. clears a city. You know, they've never seen what white phosphorus does to somebody. Uh, so they're much more likely to be okay with it. I mean, that's something that's happened throughout time. Most imperial powers, uh, their citizens are totally fine with the war until they start seeing it. So then after you were done with your service and you came back, did you find that you were able to notice American exceptionalism and xenophobia that you maybe didn't notice before? Like what I mean by that is like from your experience and having seen all those things and seeing that these people in these other countries are just people like us. Did you notice that when people are talking to you and knowing you're a veteran, that there was this automatic assumption on their part that Americans are superior and everyone else is inferior and perhaps even less than human, which makes war and atrocities like easier to stomach? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was almost universally like people would openly use racial slurs around me <laughs> uh, like in regards to Arab people um, and like think I'd be fine with it. Um, and would say that, like, yeah, we, we should just fucking glass the whole thing. Oh. Which, you know, it means nuke them. Um, yeah. Uh, like, just, or like a good example is like, I was in Afghanistan when Robert Bales uh, massacred 23 people. Uh, he shot up an Afghan village uh, and then got arrested by the US forces. Um, it was awful. It happened a couple miles away from me. I didn't have to respond to it or see it or anything. But like, it was something that was, you know, obviously foremost in my head whenever i think about people like that that talk like that that uh when they see somebody like robert bales execute children with a sidearm or stab an old woman to death that that's what they agree with and like that they're fine with that like they don't see anything wrong with what he did the only thing that they see wrong with it is that it made america look bad on the internet like not the fact that he wearing an american flag on his shoulder massacred 20 something people um or the, like whenever, um, you know, a drone strike hits a hospital or when we blew up fucking um, Doctors Without Borders Hospital in Kunduz, Afghanistan, uh, people immediately try to do everything they can to explain why whatever we did was fine and good, actually. And those kids just shouldn't have been playing in that playground. You know, uh, it, it's it's an incredible amount of mental gymnastics that no matter what happens, America always ends up being the just and right thing. So then do you kind of see, or maybe not even kind of, do you see American exceptionalism then as just kind of like a sugar-coated way to describe bigotry? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's a good example. Um, it, it allows them to be bigots. It allows them to be racist. It allows them to openly call for violence, but like, no, but it's fine because, you know, we're good. We're, <laughs> you know, I, I'm calling for you to nuke all of Iraq and Afghanistan, but it's because they don't want democracy like we do. We're doing them a favor. Yeah, it's literally no difference as like some Nazi propaganda shit. It's like, no, this is fine because they're not human. Like, that's exactly what that is. It's, uh, it's, it's the othering that eventually leads to mass murder. This is the same kind of escalating rhetoric that leads to like a million and a half dead Armenians or six million dead Jews. Like, like that's how this starts. People just don't start wanting to throw people in camps, but we're already there. We're already throwing people in camps. I just heard like an NPR program the other day, kind of totally whitewashing and denying that not only the political concentration camps at the borders, but also the illegal actions of the DHS, like how they were kidnapping protesters in Portland, not just brutality, but 
the executions of Black people by the police, people being held in jail without due process, being deported without due process, because they were doing a segment about China and uh, detention centers there. And I was like, okay, interesting, interesting. And then I think it was Scott Simon. It was Weekend Edition was like, what about the argument of the Chinese government that, they, you know, that we, we have similar facilities in the West, in the U.S. and the U.K.? What's fundamentally different in China is that this is not a case where there is any kind of due process happening for the majority of people. They have clearly framed this as a kind of de-radicalization program. And to me, that sends the message that people are at risk of uh, quote-unquote radicalization for not for any action that they might have done, but because of, you know, of who they are mm -hmm. and what their ethnic background is. And to me, that's that's a fundamentally different issue than, you know, all of the problems with prison systems elsewhere in the world, including the United States. It's that American exceptionalism is so pervasive. It's like air. Spewing propaganda is as normal as breathing. Yeah. And like, fuck China for what they're doing. But like, I think that's something like up until very recently, nobody gave a shit. And it's because that they like, I don't think they were, they were very careful of bringing it up through comparisons of what's going on the border. It's not nearly as, um, as large scale, but I don't think that's from a lack of wanting it to be, you know, um, if, if nobody raised hell about it, nobody would give a shit. It, it wasn't that they find it ethically bad or morally wrong that they're throwing children and families in concentration camps on the border. It's, that they got caught doing it and like but they're like oh look when china does it it's bad when we do it it's due process like do is due process having an unescorted minor being brought to court alone because that's what we do that's what that's the due process that they're talking about so when you said get caught meaning that we have been doing this for years and only recently did we become aware of it uh, we absolutely have been doing it for years uh, it started uh, i believe in 2008 or 9 uh, and it was a lesser extent even before that. Um, and I think the only thing that changed it is that Trump was president. Therefore, liberals could be mad at it because they were totally fine when Obama and Biden were doing it. I've heard it called like the Trump blacklight or Trump flashlight or something where if he does something that every other president did prior, he puts this spotlight on it and we can now see something that we didn't know we were even doing before. Yeah, uh, I think it's like that, uh, honestly, to use their own word, uh, like from the right wing is like they call it Trump derangement syndrome or whatever. When like liberals get really mad at shit that Trump does, it's been going on for like 10 years. And, and they're and they're not seeing the point of that. Like um, they're not seeing that it's wrong because of it's wrong or it's illegal or immoral. It's wrong because Trump is making us look bad. They don't care about the action itself. Like. Nobody gave a shit when Obama was drone striking the shit out of Pakistan until kids were afraid of the clear skies. They they care that Trump does it because Trump does it. They don't care because people are dead. They don't care that people are in concentration camps at the border. They care about it because Trump did it. Like if, if the second you like, and I'm not saying Trump is is good. Obviously, he's a fucking fascist. But like. He's the symptom of a cancer that has been metastasizing since the fucking 70s. And if you can't fucking see that, the only thing that like that they want to happen is that they're fine with racism and fascism and concentration camps and drone strikes. They just don't want to hear about it. Like they want all of this to be tucked neatly away behind a curtain where they don't have to feel bad about it anymore. 
And that's why they get really fucking mad whenever I talk. (laughs) Something you've mentioned throughout this is about the socialism that you had in the military. I think you said socialism by blood. Mm -hmm. But for those in the military, are they aware of how much socialism there is? Of course not. (laughs) Okay. No, they they hate. They're like the Steven Crowder of socialism is in that they understand what the word is, but they have no idea what it means. Like if you if you point out, and I've seen this happen in real time, that like they call it, it's called Tricare in the military or the Universal Healthcare Program. Like this is a socialized medicine. Like no, I I earn this by being in the military. Like yeah, but what if you could earn it just by like existing in a space in the United States? <laughs> like what have you done that's better than anything else? In fact, you pay probably less in taxes because when you're deployed, you get tax-free paychecks. <laughs> I've heard right-wing people say this where in one sentence, they're talking about how they hate socialism and then in another say that everybody in America is too soft and how the country needs to be run like the U.S. military. And I'm like, wait, but then that would look a lot like socialism. I mean, there's like this aggressive aspect to it, but we would have all these like socialized benefits. And they're like, what? Yeah, it's right-wingers hate Marxism and communism and socialism, but they have no fucking idea what it is. And it's never ceased to be amazing to me. Like they don't know what actual words mean so they're just going to scream a lot Mm. and hopefully that's going to be enough and that's why like someone there's a great twitter account called accidentally left wing that finds this shit all the time and they'll they'll be like you know um for having having like a national uh health system would be good uh if you know everybody gets taken care of and you don't and like it would save you money i'm like "Uh uh-huh yeah you're right they call it socialism <laughs> or the, the very idea of a military paid for by everyone and able to be enlisted by by everyone and under the command of the elected representative of the people is socialist. <laughs> it's for the greater good and our tax money or social security or Medicare or the fucking roads. But the second you try to bring any of those things in, the, in the, like, well, those would exist in the private market, too. I'm like, yeah badly which is why we don't do it the disconnection is something that i've noticed since i was probably 18 or 19 years old of like and i I think that it's just you know boomer addled brains yelling about the red scare and their kids absorbed it and now we're just seeing another generation of it but at, at least their parents were afraid of like the legitimate legitimately being nuked by the ussr like that was a thing that could have happened uh, but now people are just mad about, you know, uh, the president calling Joe Biden a socialist or something, or, you know, he's Antifa supports him and everyone's like, yeah, he's a fucking communist. Like, yup, sure. I-, I wish he was as cool as everybody said he was. <laughs> and something you've talked about throughout this interview is about, you know, how awful war is. Right. But I think there's a lot of misconceptions about being a non-officer soldier. The commercials and the politicians make it seem like you're all superheroes <laughs> fighting Cobra and Hydra 24-7. But isn't most of military service, especially, like I said, for just regular enlistees, more like cheap labor? Yeah, 99% of your life is menial labor. And another 0.5% of that is attempting to get out of that menial labor. Like, you don't... Uh, I, was in the, I was in the military for uh, almost 10 years. And I, for two years of that, 
uh, I wasn't like directly almost being murdered. Uh, you know, I was, uh, I was in a combat zone for two years of that. So the vast majority of my time in the military was sitting around waiting for someone to tell me I could go home because there was nothing to do or picking up cigarette butts in a parking lot or mowing grass or, or doing some other menial fucking task that I hated, you know? Um, and like another part of that is you eventually learn how to get very good at getting out of those jobs so you can go play Xbox in the barracks. <laughs> That's the most important skill I ever learned. So was there then this kind of feeling like you were uh, part of the working class? You were a proletariat? You'd think that. Um, you would absolutely think that most people in the military would identify very strongly with like working class. And most of them come from working class backgrounds. But uh, the the way that you're taught is like, no, 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 you're a soldier. It's different. Oh, it's different when you do it. Yeah, it's different when you make starvation wages and have someone you hate yell at you all day long about working. You're not working class. You're just enlisted. So when you're an enlistee digging ditches, you're different from the other dude here in the U.S. digging ditches. Yeah, because you're noble or something. Okay, okay. So we keep hearing about military spending in this country and how we spend exponentially more than every other country. And it's talked about as if the money goes directly to you to soldiers. <laughs> but military veterans, and we were talking about this even before we started, how you're not rich, right? So military veterans are, surprised are not in fact rich. And from stats I've read, veterans are disproportionately more likely to be homeless than the regular population. So where does all this money go? Because we keep increasing this budget. Yeah, this, this isn't some kind of uh, like trickle down system that we have uh I, I in fact am not a franchisee of the united <laughs> states army i don't make any money off of uh weapon sales uh i have sold i have two best-selling books and i am still very much not rich um you know it, like my first paycheck i was i, I was an e1 as a private um uh, and my first paycheck was like 800 dollars a month so like no we're not, we're not rich it's like a ponzi scheme <laughs> Yeah, it, it's, it's socialism. But if you're a fucking F-35, all the money is put into technology that most soldiers are never going to see um, into kickbacks and, you know, fucking dark money budgets for the Pentagon that they don't have to report. Um, really dumb projects like, you know, the F-35 strike fighter, which is a hilarious failure, or the littoral combat ship of the Navy, which is probably the dumbest fucking thing on earth that melts when salt water touches it what? Uh, um and then there's the the, the v-22 osprey that the marines have which they nicknamed the elevator of death because it kills so many people you know like it's it's a very it's it's a it's almost exactly like a pump. It's a pump and dump it's just nobody's dumped it yet like we just keep pumping money into an endless never ceasing weapons development system that most of them fail miserably, but we spend so much. It's it's like an ultimate sunk cost fallacy. Like we've spent so much money on some of this stuff that we're never going to realize that we're wrong, and we're going to field it, and it's going to maim and kill dozens of people until somebody realizes that it's broken, and that's going to be that. So we use then patriotism to keep increasing military spending, thinking it's going to help you guys and benefiting you for life after the military, but in fact those tax dollars and money we just print out of thin air doesn't go to the troops. It probably goes to civilians who are contracted to make this stuff. Oh yeah. The civilians, the contractors and the companies themselves, like uh, 
Boeing doesn't make all their money making 737s or whatever. Uh, you know, Northrop Grumman makes all their money somehow. General Dynamics makes all their money somehow, like billions upon billions upon billions of dollars that at this point nobody keeps track of anymore. Like that somebody once attempted an audit of the Pentagon and just gave up. <laughs> like it just doesn't make any sense. Like it's completely untraceable. Nobody keeps track of it because they realize, like I said, money isn't real. You know, um, it's only real when it comes to paying for education and healthcare. But when it comes to, um, I can't even remember the, uh, another dumb project that we did or like the Comanche helicopter that we worked on for 20 fucking years, could never get it to work right, spent billions of dollars and just threw in the trash. <laughs> like, yep, didn't work. Moving on. Like for the same price, you could have built like, I don't know, a dozen schools. So then do you find a lot of misconceptions like that where people think military people are really well taken care of? I don't think that's a misconception. I think in comparison to the rest of the country, people in the military are much better taken care of by the government than anyone else mm. um, because they have an explicit say in that game. Like they have a dog in that fight, right? Like they want, they need you to be healthy. Um, it's in their best. It, like that, the only time I've ever had a, a preventative health check was in the military. Um, I had a primary care provider for the only time in my life. I went to the dentist two times a year. Um, if I, if I was ever hurt, if I like my knee was a little sore, I got an MRI within six hours, 12 hours. Sometimes, um, I would see every specialist that I needed to see, um, regarding any problem I was ever going to have, uh, for free. But that's while you're in the military, right? Yes. Depending. I mean, uh, the VA exists, which is not perfect. Um, but is better than any civilian healthcare that I've ever seen. Um, it's free, depending on like what your what program that you have. You'll see specialists, you'll see doctors. You can get prescriptions. You can go to the dentist or whatever. Um, and I mean, it's very regional. Some areas are, aren't so great. Um, but you know, I've had civilian healthcare as well where I couldn't even navigate the shit. Nothing was in my network or whatever. And then at the end of the day, I just didn't fucking use it because it didn't work. You know, if you go to a VA hospital, you will eventually get taken care of. Um, it, I, I have no problem with anybody being a slightly jealous of things that are given to veterans because we get given more than anyone else. I, like, I can get my vehicle registered for free. I can uh, go get discounts. I can skip to the head of lines. I can, I don't know, get education. I got an entire four-year degree. Um, I can go to the doctor, you know? <laughs> but those are all things that most people simply can't do. So then just the fact that you have all these benefits that continue along with you after military is a huge plus. Yeah. I mean, it's the whole reason that even enlisting is worth it. We think about like not having healthcare, not having free college, like, just having those things, not even like having like a basic income, just helps to take the boot off your neck. Yeah, I mean, it, it gives you some breathing room. It's the it's it's, a, it's it's the only functioning symbol of a society, right? Like, it without actual benefits, like a retirement system, which you know, I don't have, um, uh, healthcare, which I do have, or education, which I did have. Like, what are we here for? What are we? What's the point of all this? You know, we have like if those are the most basic needs that a society has to have in order to do something right. Like, you know, we don't have the right to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness if I can't afford my fucking medication. 
you know, I don't, I don't have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness if I can't get a fucking job because everything requires a bachelor's degree and I can't afford school. You know, that's like those are explicitly this should be explicitly illegal because they're effectively going directly against my own best interests when those things could very easily be given by the government. And I'm, I'm obviously I'm not a huge government person, but if we're going to have one, there's some basic things that it should do. Um, and one of them is not deploy fucking stormtroopers in mom vans to Portland. You know, it's render healthcare, give prescription drugs, educate people, have schools that don't have fucking asbestos in them, have roads that function, maybe like an ambulance that will come to your house if you need help, you know, things like that. Uh, otherwise, we don't have a society. The United States is a giant military with a civilian population. So to something you said earlier, then is human rights. Well, you didn't call it this. You call it socialism. But basically, in this country, to get human rights, you have to pay for it in blood. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the United States doesn't really have human rights, does it? I mean, <laughs> we have more incarcerated people than anywhere else in the world. Um, if I don't listen to the cops, they'll kill me. Um, if I go to the hospital, I'll be bankrupt. Uh, what does it do? Like, what good are, is our, like, if our government is doing uh, precisely zero public good, why does it exist? It, it's only in that negative. Um, yeah, and yeah, I called it socialism because, like, calling something human rights in the United States doesn't even work anymore. Uh, you know, we, <laughs> our, our press can't even cover fucking a protest without getting shot by the cops or getting beaten by fucking brown shirts you know um the the concept that these rights are are inherent to us is is past the point of doubt like they don't exist um and they won't exist unless like we actively take them back and like it it's it's only once those the most basic human rights matter that we can actually provide for people as we should be doing. As in my opinion, if we're going to listen to the Constitution, which is a garbage document based on racism, um, if we're going to listen to the Constitution, that's what the Constitution demands. But we're not doing that either. So even in a garbage document, if you're to stay morally consistent, we should still have more rights. Yeah. like If you're going to have a horrible settler nation built upon racism at least be morally consistent about it that's all i'm asking <laughs> let's talk about the books that you've written you've written two so far i know you have more coming and i've had the pleasure of reading both can you tell us what they are and what they're about uh yeah actually my first one is the called the hooligans of kandahar and it is the true story of my last deployment in afghanistan that was my first book um my second book came out last year in may I uh, could be wrong, uh, called Citizen of Earth. And it is military sci-fi. Um, and its sequel, The Great Traitor, came out uh, this month in August, actually, um, of 2020. Oh, okay. And uh, I wanted to explore a little bit about um, like left-wing idealism and liberation and freedom in space, um, simply because um, if anybody is familiar with sci-fi, it is very very much so dominated by uh, reactionary and fascist voices um, and some of the most timeless timeless classics in military sci-fi are like ex explicitly fascists and nationalists like anything ever written by Heinlein um, so like but not Ender's Game right? oh Jesus fucking Christ <laughs> <laughs> 
So then how did you become an author? Was it a culmination of a lifetime of writing? Um, I've always been a writer. Um, I've always wanted to be a writer, but I never thought, like even as a kid, it's something I've always wanted to do. I just never thought it was possible because it's hard to make a living make, being a writer. Um, and it, most people will just laugh at you. Um, and uh, But it, it really only started when I started writing Hooligans when I was being encouraged by people around me to keep writing it because I did not want to finish it because it was really hard for me to write. Um, and that book did very, very well for me. Um, and it was, uh, it made me able to, uh, leverage it into a sci-fi trilogy deal, which I am still in the middle of, I'm writing the third book now, and I will not be signing any more contracts for trilogies. <laughs> <laughs> so is that how you ended up with a trilogy then is because it was in the contract? Orig well, originally the first book was going to be a standalone, but they liked it enough. And I was like, Hey, if you like it that much. I can think of two more books and they're like, uh, oh, I got you. Yeah. And like, and none of it would have been possible without like the hooligans. Um, but that book is still the most popular book I've, I've written by far by literally tens of thousands of times over. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I, I wouldn't have been able, like, I caught the eye of an editor who worked for a publisher, uh, who also happened to be a book reviewer, uh, who is reviewing hooligans. And, you know, then he asked if I ever had any other ideas to reach out to him. Um, and that's kind of how I did it. Uh, not the most traditional means because traditional publishing is not easy to navigate or do. Uh, but I was able to leverage a connection because the old boy system is great when it works for you. Um, and also like publishing itself is nothing but a giant chain of people who you know, who you know, who you know, and able to like leverage that into something. So then is Citizen of Earth an idea you came up with because you had this contact and they were like, hey, if you have another idea, contact me. And you were like, okay, let me come up with an idea. Or was it a story idea that you've been mulling over for years? I came up with it randomly one day. Like, I wish I had a better, ex like, uh, uh, that I've had this idea since childhood. But like, uh, I thought of it randomly one day. Uh, I sketched like I I did an outline of it, with like it just you know the who, what, where, and how of everything, uh, and then I wrote the rough draft in about three months, uh, which has ended up equaling to be about one book per year so far, which is completely unsustainable for my mental health. Uh, but you know, it's uh, uh, I finished the entire thing uh, when uh, he reached out to me. I'm like, well, I have this this completely done manuscript here. And he was like, okay, I'll take a look at it. And I didn't think I was going to hear anything back. And uh, I did, which was nice. Is that, you know, rejection hurts. <laughs> uh, because like hooligans get rejected tons of times, uh, uh, which is normal for a first time author. Um, most, if you don't have a name to go off of in publishing, good luck. And I'm still largely nobody. So like, but I, I at least can say I have this published and that will, is enough to get you in the door most of the time. What about like the promotions and getting the book out there? Because I've heard a lot of times for authors, they have to spend a lot of their own money, even though they are through a traditional publisher to try to like set stuff up. Is that the same in your case or was it a lot of like, no, they handled that? My current publisher handles pretty much everything for me. Um, my old one did nothing um, because I was a nobody. They didn't want it. They, it was considered a net loss if they stuck their neck out for me. So I pretty much just kind of had to hustle my own way through which worked out pretty well. So you also have a podcast called Lions Led by Donkeys. Yep. Tell us about the show. So we like to study the the biggest disasters um, 
mess ups, assholes, or whoever um, from military history and from kind of history in general. Um, and, you know, do deep dives on maybe conflicts that you've never heard of, you had bad education on because nobody ever talks about them. Um, talk about military disasters and how they ended up that way. Uh, the histories and politics behind those sorts of things. And um, I didn't know when I started this podcast, but apparently it's leftist when you um, when you just report history like it happened. Weird. <laughs> um, you know, we we do take I, I I can't say a critical look at imperialism because you can only do that right. Um, otherwise, you're fucking gross. Um, you know, we, we're overly critical on everything that we study because it's military history. Um, and I, in my opinion, one of the biggest drivers of, of, the, of the history of the human race has been military action. So in order to chart the changes of, uh, that have occurred through nations and through times and through eras, you, you have to look at military conquests and, and military actors and leaders um, in order to understand how you got there or how you didn't get there. Um, and, you know, normally that ends up being a few key players. So we end up talking about the same countries a lot. But, you know, we've done everything from the Iran-Iraq war to the Soviet war in Afghanistan to our current uh, Russo-Japanese war series that we're working on right now. So then it sounds like you've already had instances where right wing dudes come upon your work and feel like you're too leftist and they get upset. But do you ever feel like just from you just telling the truth and telling it how it is? that maybe inadvertently or maybe you do want this to happen, that you convert some people over to the left? I've had a few people tell me that's ha that happened to them, that um, talking about things that have happened have slowly led them into a more leftist po political position. It's not my intention. I'm not mad that it happened. Um, and, you know, we do have a lot of shitty right-wingers get pissed at us because we shit on Confederates a lot because that's what you should do to Confederates and piss on their graves um, and pull down their statues. But um, I'm talking about like Rhodesia got a lot of people mad, which was interesting um, because like if anybody ha ever had a problem with my arguments and specifically they would cite them, right? Like they would have a, a instead of just like calling me a slurs or whatever, like, <laughs> like no, you, you're just mad that I called you a racist because you have a Rhodesian flag up, uh, but you know, um, uh, there, we have a podcast discord for anybody who supports the show. And, uh, more than one person has said that, you know, this show, uh, my show and a few others have slowly, but surely led them, uh, into believing more left political ideas. And, um, I, I accept that now, like when we started, uh, you know, 120 episodes ago or whatever it is, that was never my intention. I never saw that as a political show. And then I realized that was really stupid because history is politics and politics make history. And the military is both of those things. I mean, the mili war is just politics plus violence. And the violence is politics. So, like, you have to look at both of them and understand where they came from. And I don't take kid gloves to that anymore like I used to. Um, I stopped doing that probably 20 episodes in. But I realized, like, nope, this is just what we do now. I know your initial intent then wasn't to have a, a leftist history podcast, but do you feel like now that is what it's become and you're okay with that? Or you do kind of want to convert people over through military history to more of like a bottom up perspective? 
I think um, that might be the case. And like a lot of it is because military history specifically is generally controlled by like right wingers uh, because they are generally the ones who go to school for that type of thing, which I did not. I majored in European history, but surprise, European history, 99% military history, (laughs) whatever. It's I I liked like it's kind of like when I wrote sci-fi and how I start talking about military history. It's like I don't feel comfortable saying like, oh, those spaces that you are interested in are in, like controlled by right wingers. Like if like in your, in, in LA or, you know, I live in uh, Oahu, Hawaii, if there was a specific part of town you couldn't go to cause it's controlled by Nazis, would you ignore it? <laughs> you know, like no topic should be seated. Like you should fight for the narrative of everything because yeah, by not doing it, you're giving up to historical revisionism, which is something that I find fucking gross. Um, and like, if that's what leads people to be more leftist, then I welcome them. Um, and I've had like a few people who are even marginally centrist and right wingers say that they still like my show. Um, cause it's not like I'm quoting Lenin or Marx at you, except for those episodes where I quote Lenin and Marx, uh, <laughs> you're topical, whatever your topic is, that's what you're talking about. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely trying to like make it make sense, and you know, right wingers inherently like hearing about military history um, because you know they buy into the great man theory of history, which is wrong and gross. And I really (laughs) enjoy explaining why all those great men suck. Right now, I'm the only leftist martial arts podcast. Whereas in the military space, I think there's like four or five military leftist podcasts. So I think y'all are doing a lot better job than we are. <laughs> you know, well, I, I really have to thank um, the guys that, that showed me that I could be openly leftist and not like, I don't know, die or whatever. I don't know. Um, I don't like to think of mine as like a military specific podcast, even though me and my co-host are both were or still are in the military. Um, Though that does lead to some in-jokes, I guess. Um, but like, I, th- I think it's becoming more and more open uh, and okay for that to be the case. Um, though obviously we have to tread lightly as he is still in active duty in the military. So when, if I'm going to talk about something that directly attacks someone who's still currently in office, I bring a guest on. Um, yeah, don't want him to lose his job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's... It, it's becoming more and more acceptable, um, and I mean, I don't, I don't know any other leftist martial artists in the game, so <laughs> you know, everybody's pretty much awful um, or addicted yeah. to Joe Rogan. So, who was like the first uh, leftist military podcast? Was it a hell of a way to die? Or I think it was. Um, that's the one that I know of the most, um, and so they're the, the OGs. Yeah, that's the way I'm put. That, that's a good way of putting it. And I think, um, like a lot of us who went on to, I don't know, spread the gospel of like having healthcare is good, um, mm-hmm. kind of ended up being inspired or being on their show. Like they, they're the first major outlet that gave me a spot to like interview me about my book. Um, so like I'll always be thankful for them. You know, a lot of people who got started on that show went on to create their own. Um, and, you know, their their co-host and producer, Nate, is my producer for my show. Um, and we, you know, amplify each other's voices because, you know, there's there, there's big money in, in podcasts um, if you say the right things. And those things are never leftist. Like nobody's there's never going to be like a big money 
leftist cedar coming through to give us, you know, exposure or, you know, anything else that we want. So like we have to support one another, like that whole solidarity thing that's, you know, important. Um, so it's, it's nice that we kind of have like a sphere of podcasts that help each other out. One of the interesting things about your show is that it's not a typical history podcast where it's the podcaster, you directly telling us, the listeners, a story about history. It's not like Dan Carlin. Instead, it's you telling one or more of your friends a story about history and them reacting, and we get to listen in. How did you decide on that as the format? That's kind of how the show started. Uh, is like Nick and I are, are both history buffs on different aspects of history. So we would keep trying to one up one another on dumb shit that we could find from history and like try to baffle the other one or blow the other one's mind. Um, and finally, one of our other friends said, you guys should just shut the fuck up and make a podcast. <laughs> and that's what we did. Um, and like we, we used to watch a lot of like YouTube videos where it talked about, you know, history documentaries and we would just like roast them the whole time because like the, either the history was bad or people obviously had like love affairs with members uh, of like uh, people from history and would overlook their flaws to the point that like really pissed us off. So we kind of just set out to to do that, um, like our own version of that, where we can mock people as much as we want. Um, and you know, Nick was like, I was much better at research because uh, at that point I was finishing up college, so. Like I knew how to like research a capstone paperwork or or research a research paper or whatever. Uh, so like I like well I'll do the research and I'm comfortable being on a microphone. So you know I I've no problem with that. Um, and that's just that was how we started. And I didn't think it was actually going to go well. Um, and I still don't think it will. But here we are two oh, two and a half years later doing all right. <laughs> so we've talked a lot about the military. You write books on it. You also have a history podcast that delves a lot into the military. Do you ever get sick of talking about the military? All the time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, it, I understand it's going to be the defining thing of my life. Like I've already accepted that. You've also made it your defining thing. Yeah. I mean, I leaned into what I knew um, as a strength. And now it's just like the thing that I'm known for. Um, and you know, I'm not uncomfortable with it. Um, I think that over time, it will uh, not be so apt because I just won't know that much anymore. Um, like, you know, in 10 years, what the fuck am I going to know about the military, right? Um, I mean, in 10 years, if my podcast is still a thing, I'll revisit that question. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, it's um, I would like to eventually be known for something else, mm -hmm. but I don't know what that would be. And so, like, I, I think that I rolled the dice to start something because like all authors kind of have brands right like and mine is being a loudmouth veteran that isn't a racist which is there's worse brands to have i could have started a fucking coffee company or something <laughs> which also seems to be a thing I, I i've never understood the coffee brands or the apparel brands um I get actually I understand the apparel brands more because because veterans have no style and all just everybody wants to dress the same because they've have been told to have bad haircuts and tuck their pants into their boots for the last fucking three years or whatever. But like I I've, I've never quite understood it. Um, I think it's like a culture thing where they all want to like they they want people to know 
who they are. But do you ever find like, um, because I've talked to uh, two previous guests who were YouTubers. One specializes in scary stories. The other one talks a lot about anime. But they've both said independently that even though they love their respective genres and enjoy it, it's not their only interest. So sometimes they need to take a break from their own show or just do something else just for their own sake, right? Have you ever felt this need to take breaks? I feel it. I just don't listen to it. Um, like, I mean, I think I'm I'm lucky in that um, in between writing scripts for my show, I also have to write. Uh, I have to work on my books, so like I, I have a built-in break. Um, though I'm not good at multitasking when it comes to things like that, so I'll either write eight weeks of podcast stuff or you know twenty pages of a book. I won't bounce back and forth. Um, I just write until I burn myself out, which is not a healthy way to do things. <laughs> so we've got the elections fast approaching. We got Biden and Trump, which isn't very indicative of a left wing shift. So what do you see happening with the left movement? Do you see it continuing to grow? Are you hopeful about it? I would like to be optimistic. Um, I, I I think if Biden wins, which I don't think he will, but if if he does the general leftward shift of normal people within the Democratic Party will stop abruptly because their main driving force was against Trump Republicanism, um, not the inherent inequities of capital. If things go back to Obama America, which is what Biden is effectively selling, right? Like he's like, no, we're going to go back to when I was vice president. And we were drone striking people, had kids in jail, but you didn't have to think about it. Go back to the conditions that created Trump, right? So that that means in twenty twenty four, we're going to have fucking Tom Cotton running for president or something. Yeah, that's my fear. I mean, if he wins, I I I don't think the left will fall apart. The left has never fallen apart. Mayday Mayday parades and riots are a thing for a reason. Um, I mean, labor rights happen for a reason. We have weekends and eight-hour workdays for a reason, just because we lose. And if there's one thing that leftists are good at, it's fucking losing, because it happens all the time in the United States. does not mean we're going to go away. If anything, we're just going to become louder, because we're going to be fucking pissed that everyone who said that they were our comrades or whatever and joined DSA after because they got really mad about the orange guy went back to being a centrist when they could ignore it again. We're... I mean, it, it, leftism is not going away. Uh, people have seen the inequities in capital. People have seen the inequities in policing. People have seen the inequities of the use of force and violence of the state on the people in the streets. Those things cannot be ignored. And ignoring them at this point is violence. Um, active and passive support to it and, and like in an equal state that kills people in the streets and incarcerates people higher than any other country on earth is consent. Hmm. Kind of like a Nazi and a Nazi sympathizer is just the same thing. Yes, absolutely. If, if you were a German and you did not throw your hand up in a Hitler salute, but you did nothing while your neighbors were murdered by the millions, you are a Nazi. Cause like the, and the, the piles and, piles of inequities and illegalities that prop up our country aren't going away because joe fucking biden gets elected <laughs> like it's incredible that people think that he's this vehicle for change when he when he when he was specifically picked 
to be Barack Obama's vice president because old white people like him. They do. They do like him. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, you know what I think is the main driver for change in this country? Fucking old racist boomers. Yeah. That that'll do it. That should that should solve all these problems. No, Joe, you don't understand. Joe Biden has become more progressive over time because age and being around other politicians makes you more progressive. Yeah. Can't you tell how progressive he is? His, his uh, vice president is a woman of color who's also a cop, meaning I completely forgot about that. And I made a joke about that earlier. I, I really people are blind to the issues at hand where they believe that the moderating force to guide this nation forward is going to be someone that supported segregation and a woman who threw moms in prison because their kids didn't go to school. It, and like, and how empty is Kamala Harris as a woman to go on stage and call Joe Biden a fucking racist and all these other things and then immediately saddle up next to him as a running mate. If you meant anything that you said, you would be re- you would be repulsed by the idea of being on the same ticket as him. That would be like me running on the same ticket as Erdogan. Like you're literally talking about imprisoning and killing my people, but no, we're we're boys now because like I don't know, big tent politics or whatever. Fuck that. It's fucking it's moral and ethical cowardice and nothing more. You're talking about that thing you mentioned earlier about moral consistency, right? Right. Like it's the Democratic Party is perfectly encompassed by uh, Democratic politicians wearing that like that scarf and then taking a knee after George Floyd was murdered as some kind of solidarity movement with African-Americans. And then like Gretchen Whitmer, who's the Democratic governor of Michigan and very nearly vice presidential candidate, ordered her uh, the, the National Guard of Michigan to Wisconsin. But I thought that you understood. No, oh, oh, wait, no, you were just lying. Okay, cool. And you're literally deploying violence against people. Cool. Okay. That's what I thought. There has not been a lot of wanton violence uh, between protesters. It's been between cops and protesters when the cops start rioting and beating people. Well, that's an interesting point, right? That people don't talk about that you just said. Cops rioting, that they can riot. Well, that's what's been happening. Yeah. People aren't fucking rioting. Cops are rioting. I, I, I've seen very few instances of civilians wa- using violence against one another, unless it's like the Proud Boys or some fucking Nazis that showed up, in which case they're shooting us um, or, they're pepper, or they're pepper spraying us. Um, I'm not sure what exactly what happened in Portland last night, and I won't comment on it because I'm not sure of the facts yet. Uh, but but we know what happened in Kenishaw. You know, we we know what happened in a lot of these places. Um, we saw a fucking pitched goddamn battle between the left and the right in Portland while PBD did nothing. Because it's been shown through emails and documents that the Portland Police Bureau supports Patriot Prayer. You know, we, we don't uh, when we see the cops show up, they immediately turn and deploy violence against the left without ex- with without exception. I've never once seen them deploy violence against the right. And I'm not saying that they should. I just don't think cops should exist. But I mean, like this isn't a pro like cops are being violent against protesters thing because they're not. They're being violent against left wing protesters and left wing protesters only. Yeah, it's weighted one way. Yes. So they're rioting. You know, they're they're 
riding against left-wing people. They're using this political violence because uh, they're not using against anyone else. You know, going back to martial arts and Portland, because I know the Portland martial arts scene, those Patriot Prayer guys and a lot of those cops train at the same martial arts and same BJJ studios. So it's like... Shocked face. <laughs> yeah, right? So that's that, the least fucking shocking thing I've ever heard. That, that's that magical togetherness. That's that unity where these worlds come together, you know? Uh, I guess I know where they get each other's phone numbers yeah. from. Sha-la-la-la. <laughs> All right, Joe. Thanks for your time. Where can people find you, your books, and your podcast? Uh, so you can find me on Twitter at jcast99. Um, you can find my podcast, Lions Led by Donkeys, on anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Uh, and you can find my books anywhere that you buy books. Um, Amazon, obviously, but it, you know, if you don't want to give your money to a horrible, horrible person, uh, it's available everywhere else, too. I'll put the links in the show notes. Thanks for having me. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye.